Welcome to Mayo Clinic Pharmacy Grand Rounds, a weekly podcast for pharmacists, physicians, physician assistants, and nurse practitioners who are interested in learning more about clinical pharmacology topics. I'm your host, Garrett Schramm, Director of Pharmacy Education and Academic Affairs at Mayo Clinic. To claim pharmacology CE credit or to get a copy of presentation slides, visit ce.mayo.edu slash pharmacy podcast. Sedation is often utilized for mechanically ventilated patients to reduce intervention discomfort and increase ventilator tolerance. Complications of sedation use include delirium and prolonged time to extubation with excess sedation increasing these risks. While dexmedetomidine and propofol are guideline recommended for light sedation, their differing pharmacologic properties raise the question of which agent is preferred. Here to make amends between these two agents is Dr. Hannah Brockmeyer, a rising critical care pharmacist at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. But what I see these days are paralyzed sedated patients, lying without motion, appearing to be dead, except for the monitors that tell me otherwise. This quote from Dr. Petty in 1998 as he walks through the ICU is a lot different than what you'd see today. Now as you'd walk through the ICU, you can see mechanically ventilated patients who are on sedation. They're alert and calm. They're maybe drowsy, but they can respond to the sound of your voice. As the push over the last few decades has been away from unarousable patients to light sedation, one question we ask ourselves is which sedative agent should we turn to? As we think about this question, today we will describe what the current accepted standards are for sedation and we'll differentiate the properties of dexmedetomidine and propofol for light sedation. We will also discuss the evidence for the choice of our optimal sedative agent for this purpose. As we think about what Dr. Petty saw and compared to what we see as we walk through the ICU today, there are several, key f there's several things that have changed over time. In order to free our patients from the dead he describes, one of the key things has been implementation of the ICU Liberation Bundle, or otherwise known as the ABCDEF Bundle. Several things in this bundle include constantly preventing, assessing, and managing the pain of our patients. Another aspect of this is, having, uh, is undertaking both spontaneous awakening trials and breathing trials, ideally at the same time. This has shown to decrease outcomes such as ICU length of stay, uh, time to extubation, and even mortality at one year. Another aspect is focusing on our choice of analgesia management and sedation. As we constantly assess why our patients are acquiring um, these medications and assess what our goals are for sedation. One thing that we do to assess these things is using the Richmond Agitation analgesia and sedation scale, otherwise known as the RAS. Another thing we can do is to constantly be evaluating and preventing delirium, as up to 80% of patients in the intensive care unit can experience delirium. Ideally, we prevent this from happening to our patients um, and try our best to manage it when it occurs. As much as possible, ideally for patients, we undergo early mobility and exercise as this is also shown to decrease our adverse outcomes, such as ICU length of stay. And whenever possible, it's important to engage the family and empower them to be involved in the cares for their patients. Today, our presentation will focus primarily on the choice of sedation, although it's important to keep other aspects of this bundle in mind as we go through our studies.
The PADIS guidelines by the Society of Critical Care Medicine also pull out a few key aspects that we'll highlight today. First is the concept of analogous sedation. The guidelines discuss that pain should be managed and assessed and adequately treated before considering use of a sedative agent. Ideally, we treat a lot of our ICU patients, if not all, are experiencing pain as we're constantly assessing them and undergoing interventions that can be painful. Ideally, by treating this pain up front and first, we can help decrease agitation, keep them calm, and potentially reduce our sedative requirements. The guidelines also highlight that light sedation is recommended over deep sedation for critically ill, mechanically ventilated patients. This concept is uh, due to several studies that highlighted how deep sedation compared to light can decrease our adverse outcomes over time, including time to extubation, mortality, and ICU length of stay. So the PADIS guidelines emphasizing light over deep sedation. The guidelines also discuss that either propofol or dexmedetomidine is a preferred sedative agent over benzodiazepines for critically ill mechanically ventilated patients with light sedation. This guideline statement comes from a couple of studies, including Hall and colleagues in 2011 who looked at time to extubation compared to midazolam versus propofol and found that patients in the propofol group had a decreased time to extubation. Similarly, in 2016, Carson and colleagues looked at ventilator-free days and found that this uh, outcome was favorable in the propofol group compared to lorazepam. Switching gears to benzodiazepines compared to dexmedetomidine, MENS in 2007 looked at these uh, agents for comparison for days without delirium or coma and found this favoring the dexmedetomidine group. NSAIDCOM in 2009 looked at time to extubation and less delirium for dexmedetomidine compared to midazolam and saw that this also favored the dexmedetomidine group. This brought on the guideline recommendation preferring either propofol or dexmedetomidine over benzodiazepines for our patients requiring sedative agents for light sedation. Although the guidelines recommend either agent, they don't clearly state one over the other being recommended for use for our light sedation. So although the guidelines leave us hanging, I'm curious to see what are some ideal characteristics for a sedative agent that you'd like to use uh, for mechanically ventilated patients. So please text any ideal characteristics that you'd want for a sedative agent for your patients to, uh, you can text join poll everywhere by texting Mayo RX to 22333 and then text your response or you can join at pollev.com slash MayoRx. So as I see um, a few responses trickle in here, um, several themes that I'm seeing are agents that are easily um, take started and fast on, fast off. Um, no hemodynamic effects is one that I see a few times as well. Um, minimal interactions, which could be like drug interactions for our patients. Um, one that would have analgesic properties, uh, minimal withdrawal profile. profile. So I think some things that I thought of when I was thinking like of an ideal sedative agent would be like this fast on, fast off. Um, also um, offering our patients um, a wide variety of sedation, whether light to deep, um, 
and having that short half-life, which kind of coincides with on and off, and those other properties in mind besides sedation, such as analgesia. So let's look at how our two medications that we're going to discuss today kind of compare to what we thought about being ideal properties for a sedative agent. For reference, the doses of dexmedetomidine and propofol are listed here. Both agents have a rapid duration and are considered to be fast on, fast off, although propofol notably has a faster onset, the dexmedetomidine. The half-life is also fairly similar, although propofol has slightly shorter half-life, although this can um, potentially be a little bit longer than one to two hours if patients have been on effusion for multiple days. It's worth noting that both are metabolized from the liver, although dexmedetomidine has the potential to decrease um, metabolism with any liver impairment. It's worth noting that both agents do cause bradycardia and hypotension, as though hemodynamic stability, I think, was one of the characteristics our audience identified as being ideal for a sedative agent. So as we take a closer look at how exactly these agents work, it's worth noting that propofol binds to the GABA receptor, and this process allows more influx of our chloride ions. Eventually, the cell becomes hyperpolarized, and the neurons become less excitable, leading to our sedative effects. Other properties that propofol has are it does offer anticonvulsant properties by working on the GABA receptor. It can, it's an anxiolytic and amnesic and has the potential to decrease intracranial pressure. Um, I, properties that may not be as ideal is it does cause respiratory depression. It's a lipid emulsion and caution may be warranted if your patient has an egg or soybean allergy. And there is the rare adverse effect, but serious, of propofol-related infusion syndrome. Although some of our sedatives work on the GABA receptor, dexmedetomidine works a little bit differently. In the locus ceruleus in the CNS, norepinephrine typically binds to the alpha-1 receptor. Dexmedetomidine acts as an agonist to the, on the alpha-2 receptor, leading to the negative feedback mechanism that prevents the synaptic vesicle from releasing more norepinephrine into the synapse and produces its sedative effects. Um, ideal properties that we have, additional properties that we've seen with dexmedetomidine are that it does not cause respiratory pressure in the same way as propofol. It does have the potential to decrease delirium. It offers anti-inflammatory properties, analgesia, and is anxiolytic. Reasons why dexmedetomidine is not as ideal is it does not have those anticonvulsive properties we see with our GABA acting sedatives. It does not achieve deep sedation unlike propofol, and there's the potential for withdrawal from dexmedetomidine. So I, this table summarizes some of the ideal characteristics that we saw today. And it's worth noting that neither agent checks all of these boxes, but there are a few boxes that each agent does check. So now I'm curious, keeping the pros and cons of each agent in mind, what would be your sedative of choice for light sedation in mechanically ventilated patients? So please text your responses. Uh, you can join the poll at MayoRx by texting 22333 or join online as well. Okay, so as responses trickle in, it's interesting to see that at first we get kind of more of a dead even heat between propofol or dexmedetomidine, um, but slowly but surely dexmedetomidine is starting to pull ahead. So I think to better answer this question, let's take a journey on a timeline of sedation studies. First, we will start with Mydex products, which occurred in 2012. 
Um, this was a parallel run to randomized controlled trials that looked at comparing dexmedetomidine to either midazolam or propofol for sedation. So this was a phase three multicenter randomized trial that was double blind and took place across study centers in Asia and Europe. Our population was adult ICU patients who were going to be sedated um, for at least a day. They could be eligible for enrollment, and the study targeted light to moderate sedation. Patients could be randomized if they'd only been sedated within 48 hours, and they'd been in the ICU for less than 72 hours. Mydex Prodex set out to answer, is dexmedetomidine non-inferior for maintaining sedation, and is it superior for duration of mechanical ventilation? So how Mydex and Prodex worked were centers were designated as being either Mydex or Prodex. So what I mean by that is for the most part, this was based on the choice sedative that was already there at the um, common, at the practice site. So for Mydex, the majority of patients were on midazolam and then up to 96 hour, up to 48 hours could be randomized to then continue on midazolam or receive dexmedetomidine in a double or double blind manner. And this is similar for Prodex. So about 70% of our patients in the Mydex study were medical ICU and about 60% in Prodex were. The doses of the study drug are here uh, for your reference below. Although these trials um, were done independently, it's worth noting that the dexmedetomidine dose in Mydex was a lot lower than what we saw for a dexmedetomidine dose in Prodex. As far as patients requiring rescue sedation, what the studies used for rescue sedation was the third medication not already being used. So for Mydex, this would be propofol, and for Prodex, this would be they were able to use midazolam. <coughs> Similar with our dose of study drug, um, we do see actually in both arms and Prodex, patients required rescue sedation, and this achieved statistical significance in the dexmedetomidine group. Uh, patients receiving fentanyl with our emphasis on analogous sedation was similar between all arms of the study. The reason why I'm highlighting patients requiring rescue sedation dose of study drug are, if you remember, patients were able to be randomized into this study up to 48 hours. And so there is the potential, and my thoughts are maybe if they were already receiving midazolam for an extended period of time and then were randomized to dexmedetomidine, there's a little bit more midazolam uh, hanging around, and they didn't require as much rescue sedation or dose of dexmedetomidine compared to the other arm in Prodex, where we know that propofol has a faster on and off. This study, um, as we talk about our ABCDE bundle, as the spontaneous breathing trials. So ideally, these would have been paired together. And the reason why I'm kind of pulling this out is one of our outcomes was timed extubation and duration of being on a mechanical ventilator. And patients who were unable to undergo a spontaneous breathing trial was significantly higher in the dexmedetomidine group for both arms. As far as other results of our study go, the ratio time at target sedation was pretty similar between the two groups, although this slightly favored the dexmedetomidine. Patients in Prodex were almost dead even, and for both trials, dexmedetomidine met the non-inferiority margin. As far as our other outcome of ventilator duration, you can see from this graph with the Mydex study on the left that patients with midazolam had a longer hours to extubation compared to dexmedetomidine. And for, this was similarly reflected in 
uh, prodex as the propofol group also had a longer median time to extubation, and both studies saw, both, uh, studies saw statistical significance. Other outcomes are that these studies had a similar ICU length of stay and hospital stay. We did see in MIDEX that more patients in the dexmedetomidine group did have bradycardia and hypotension, which is not surprising, although for PRODEX, these rates were fairly similar. Strengths of PRODEX MIDEX were is that it was a double-blind trial, and there was a rescue, uh, there was a different agent used for rescue sedation than what we were already using in the trial. Limitations were that patients could have been unrolled up to 48 hours of their controlled sedation, um, which I mentioned before may have potentially required lex less dexmedetomidine use, and there may have been some midazolam hanging around. And there was not a standardized ventilation weaning process, which could have potentially affected our time to extubation. So we saw that dexmedetomidine is not inferior for our time in light sedation, and the dexmedetomidine group did have a shorter time to extubation. However, is there a clinical impact with that shorter time to extubation, as we saw a similar ICU and hospital length of stay? And although patients were able to be randomized up to 48 hours, is there benefit to using dexmedetomidine earlier to improve our outcomes for these patients? Desire in 2007 was uh, set out to examine if earlier dexmedetomidine use was beneficial. Desire came about which focused on sedative agent choice for sepsis patients as a result from the MEN study that saw an improved mortality benefit in 63 patients who were septic um, and were randomized to either receive lorazepam or dexmedetomidine. So these, uh, the conductors of the study were curious if we would see a benefit with using dexmedetomidine in septic patients. So this was a multicenter randomized trial that was open label and conducted in Japan. So adult ICU patients who were septic and needed mechanical ventilation were able to be randomized. As I mentioned, this looked at earlier dexmedetomidine use as they were randomized at the beginning of their treatment. So Desire set out to see if using dexmedetomidine improved our ventilator-free days and mortality. And as this study focused on septic patients, does dexmedetomidine suppress inflammatory reactions? Our population in the study, although uh, focused on enrolling septic patients, about Equal amounts in each group did have septic shock. As far as our inflammatory markers are concerned, um, they were both elevated in each group with a little bit higher elevation in the control group for C-reactive protein. As far as what agents patients received and when, so if you recall that the goal of the study was to randomize patients as soon as possible, um, but it's worth noting in the supplement that on day one, only about 80% of patients in the dexmedetomidine group actually received dexmedetomidine. Although it's worth noting that by day two, this got closer to 96%, and there was low crossover in the control study. It's also worth noting, as I mentioned earlier, that the typical dose of dexmedetomidine was 0.1 to 0.7. And in this study, or 0.1 to 1.5, but in this study, they kind of capped the dosing at 0.1 to 0.7. And if you look at the supplement, it seems that patients were actually closer to 0.3 in this study for sedation of dexmedetomidine use. Other agents that patients received are more patients in our control group, which was using sedation without dexmedetomidine. Um, mostly the control group used propofol or midazolam, although it's worth noting 30% of the patients in dexmedetomidine got propofol and 20% also received midazolam. And about 70% of patients on day one were also re re receiving fentanyl. 
outcomes for this study are that although this did not achieve statistical significance, there was numerically lower 28-day mortality in, in the dexmedetomidine group. There was also numerically more ventilator-free days and a decrease in ICU length of stay. As far as our inflammatory markers, we did see a, a significantly more decrease in C-reactive protein in the dexmedetomidine group, although procalcitonin remained the same. As far as adverse effects are concerned, there was more bradycardia in the dexmedetomidine group compared to the control. Other outcomes are what well, uh, these trial authors looked at well-controlled sedation. So this was defined as everyone in the ICU that day, they evaluated which, um, how many patients were out that rascal and then took a percentage. And this did find statistical significance favoring dexmedetomidine over the control group being within the rascal. However, it's worth noting that the percent of patients for delirium and coma-free days were similar between the two groups in that seven-day period. Strengths of desire are it, patients were randomized quickly after the ventilation began, um, which didn't potentially allow for another sedative agent to build up. And there was more standardized spontaneous breathing trials. Several limitations are that we did see a numerical difference for morta decreased mortality with dexmedetomidine. Um, this was underpowered to detect statistical significance. And the study focused on 28-day uh, mortality and looked at more of those short-term outcomes. So we saw that adding dexmedetomidine did not improve our mortality, ventilator-free days, delirium or coma-free days. But we did decrease our C-reactive protein, and we saw more of our patients being within their RAS goal as compared to the control group. So several questions um, that we still may have after reading Desire are, do our sedation bundles impact our outcomes more than our choice of sedative? The authors posed this question are, since they expected to see more of an impact with using dexmedetomidine on delirium or coma-free, but recognized they had a lot more standards and process, including spontaneous breathing trials, so they may not have seen a difference in things like ventilator-free days. Although we saw a decrease in CRP, what was the clinical impact of this? And as Desire focused on outcomes such as 28-day mortality, um, one wonders what would be the out what would be the benefit of using dexmedetomidine on long-term outcomes. SPICE 3 was conducted in 2019 that looked at longer-term outcomes for choice of sedative agent. It's worth noting that the same authors who conducted SPICE 3 also conducted SPICE, which had uh, which did show that deep sedation within the first 48 hours was an independent risk factor for adverse outcomes such as mortality, uh, ventilator, time to extubation, and ICU length of stay. So the authors in this trial in general really pushed for having early targeted sedation or early light, sed or light sedation early on in their patients, which kind of builds off of what Desire was looking at as well. Phase 3 was a phase 3 multicenter randomized trial. This was also open label and was conducted in sites in Australia and Europe. Our population was again ICU patients who needed to be sedated for at least a calendar day. And SPICE 3 set out to randomize patients quickly um, and they were eligible for enrollment if it had been less than 12 hours since the ventilator initiation. SPICE 3 wanted to know, does using dexmedetomidine as the primary sedative agent impact all-cause mortality at 90 days. So SPICE 3, as I mentioned, tried to randomize patients fairly quickly, and you can see here that for both groups, 
This happened within about four to five hours. It's also worth noting that SPICE 3 compared to our other studies of a few hundred patients had closer to about 2,000 patients in each arm. Similar to our other studies, medical ICU admissions were, were about 70%. And although DESIRE focused primarily on sepsis patients, I also pulled out how many of our patients in SPICE 3 had suspected sepsis. Now, although I mentioned earlier that the SPICE, the spice are, um, trial authors really put an emphasis on light sedation early on, it's no worth noting that patients who were in that target RAS on day one and two was about 50% between the two groups. One of the reasons for why this might have happened were that um, this graph represents patients who were indicated by the trial's clinicians to need deep sedation. So we can see on that first day, although it was even between two, the two groups, there's about 60% of patients that physicians decided needed deep sedation, and this quickly went down at day two, three, and four. And then although, um, and we've discussed earlier how dexmedetomidine may not be um, may not be able to achieve deep sedation, and so although the trial authors wanted it to be the primary sedative agent, it's not a surprise that other sedative agents were required, especially on those first two days, as a lot of our patients required that deep sedation. So you can see from this graph here, with dexmedetomidine being in the blue, but our other sedative agents, especially propofol in those first two days, were pretty commonly used between our two patients. And if you took away that dark blue bar, um, the agents that patients were using were very similar between both the dexmedetomidine group and control. And although this graph only pulls out those first two days, about 88% of patients in the dexmedetomidine at some point did receive propofol. Results from SPICE-3 are that all-cause mortality at 90 days was about dead even between the two groups, as was days free from coma or delirium and uh, days without mechanical ventilation, and both of these outcomes were over a 28-day period. As far as adverse effects are concerned, we did see significantly more patients in the dexmedetomidine group have bradycardia or hypotension. Um, and it's also worth remembering that patients in the dexmedetomidine group had the potential to also be on propofol as compared to the control. And it's also worth noting that for uncontrolled agitation, this was significantly more in the control group compared to the dexmedetomidine. As far as what we uh, strengths from SPICE-3 are, we did have that fast randomization after the ventilator began, so it can help, help us decide what the impact of early dexmedetomidine use has. And unlike DESIRE, we had a larger patient population, so if we were to see a difference, it may have a higher chance of seeing statistical significance. Limitations of SPICE-3 were the lack of daily interruption in sedations and overall sedation protocol. It did not exclude patients who needed deep sedation, which potentially, uh, which allowed a lot of crossover between the two studies, which is pretty practically applicable but it may have clouded some of our outcomes, such as delirium. So adding dexmedetomidine in SPICE-3 didn't improve mortality. We did not see a difference in ventilator-free days or delirium or coma-free days. However, we did see an increase in hypotension and bradycardia by adding dexmedetomidine to our control sedative agents, um, we, but we did see less uncontrolled agitation than our control group. So as SPICE-3, in the dexmedetomidine group, we're also receiving a lot of other agents in the background. And so one question is, would the outcomes have been different if there wasn't as much crossover between the two trials? 
In 2021, the men's group was amenable to taking on the challenge of preventing crossover between the two groups and really kind of take on dexmedetomidine versus propofol. This was a multi-center randomized double-blind trial that took place across centers in the United States over an eight-year period. Patients in this study were adult ICU patients who were septic, so a little bit similar to the patients in Desire, who needed mechanical ventilation. However, unlike Desire, patients were able to be randomized for up to 96 hours of being on the ventilator. Men's too wanted to know, does either using propofol or dexmedetomidine for up to 14 days reduce our outcomes of delirium, how long patients are on the ventilator, or all-cause mortality? So our patients in MENS2 are similar to our other studies, with about 65% being a medical ICU patient. And about 50% of patients in each group did have shock in addition to sepsis. And about 35 to 45% of patients, by the time they were enrolled, did have delirium with a CAM positive CAM ICU. As I mentioned, patients could have been enrolled with up to 96 hours. Um, and so it's worth noting that by the time they were enrolled, they'd been in the ICU for about a day um, to a day and a quarter already, or handed about on the ventilator for about a day as well. And it's also worth seeing that our patients, when they were enrolled in this study, although this study really focused on light sedation, did have a RAS of minus 5 to minus 3 when they were enrolled. As far as what interventions these patients were receiving, um, it's also worth noting that MENS2 was conducted in uh, was focused was published in 2021, um, but the authors of this trial really did place a big emphasis on our ABCDE bundle. And so you can see here, as we refresh, the dexmedetomidine typical dose is 0.15 to 1.5 mics per kilo per hour. The median daily dose of this drug was only 0.27 for patients. Propofol is about 80 to, 5 to 80 mics per kilo per minute, and in men's patients were only requiring about 10.2. This may be attributed to the emphasis on analogous sedation, as patients were receiving a fair amount of fentanyl in each group. We did see a percent of target sedation levels of about 60% between the two groups. And as I mentioned, men's two authors really placed an emphasis on that ABCDE bundle. And one of their outcomes that they really wanted to assess was coordination of our SAT and SBT um, interventions as the, coordinating these interventions together has shown to improve outcomes like time to extubation, IC length of stay, and mortality all the way up to one year. And so this was similar, this was emphasized in this trial and was similar between the two groups. Other medications that the patient's receiving, as we remember, MENS2 was double blind and really decided, tried to eliminate all the crossover that they could. And so, but the percent of patients who got midazolam was similar between two groups, but was about 50% in the dexmedetomidine group. As far as crossover goes, for propofol, and represented by the green, um, open label use was very low in either trial, with only about 10% of our patients receiving open label propofol in the dexmedetomidine group. And open label dexmedetomidine group is also very low between the two trials. As I mentioned earlier, about 35 to 45% of our patients had delirium when they were enrolled, and antipsychotic use was similar between the two groups at about 40%. So as, men's, as far as men's two results are concerned, days out of 14 without delirium or coma was dead even between the two groups at about 11 days. And days out of 28 um, being off of mechanical ventilation was again very even between the two groups.
Other results from the study with nexmetomidine represented by the dark blue and propofol in the green are death at 98 days was almost dead even between the two groups with about 40%. Um, the drug needing to be temporarily held due to an adverse effects was similar and then the drug uh, being permanently discontinued was also very similar between the two groups. Strengths of MENTS too are it had the tremendous undertaking of undergoing a large multi-center double-blind trial and all the um, participating clinicians did very thorough follow-up assessments and really emphasized that ABCDE bundle that we've seen potentially improve our outcomes in uh, patients on mechanical ventilation with sedation. However, limitations are that since they did such a great job emphasizing ABCDE, we didn't see, we saw very low doses of our comparator medications, which may be a good thing, but it could be hard for us to really answer some of the questions about propofol compared to dexmedetomidine. It's also worth noting this trial ended up taking about eight years to enroll patients and eventually did have to enroll their target. Uh, their target enrollment had to eventually be lowered. So we saw dexmedetomidine compared to propofol had similar incidences of mortality, delirium, and days without mechanical ventilation. So would the outcomes have been different if patients had needed higher doses of their sedative agents? Or do bundles like ABCDE impact our outcomes more than the choice of sedative that we pick for our patients? So I'd like us to provide to apply what we learned in MENS2 to a patient case. So let's say you are staffing as the ICU pharmacist for the day, and you see a 58-year-old female brought up from the emergency department, and she is already mechanically ventilated. You see, catch the provider in the hall and the admitted diagnosis is sepsis. You also see that she's on a fentanyl infusion along with dexmedetomidine. Um, the nurse lets you know that her RAS currently is minus one and she is synchronizing well with the ventilator. So based on what we saw in the results of MENS2, you recommend for your patient starting a benzodiazepine as she shouldn't be at a RAS of minus one with sepsis. You should switch to propofol since it has a mortality benefit. We should keep dexmedetomidine, which saw significantly more ventilator-free days, and either propofol or dexmedetomidine would be an appropriate choice for your patient. So as results begin to come in, um, I would have to agree with the majority here. Um, a RAS of minus one is potentially appropriate for our patients with, is, could be appropriate for our patients with sepsis, as we've seen to our emphasis on targeting more of the lighter sedation goals. Um, also, switching to propofol did not have a mortality benefit as seen in MENS2, and neither did in keeping dexmedetomidine for ventilator-free days. So propofol or dexmedetomidine would be an appropriate choice for the, what you know about this patient. To summarize our timeline of sedation studies, in MyDex Prodex, uh, which we looked at either dexmedetomidine compared to midazolam or propofol without crossover between the two, we saw that dexmedetomidine is non-inferior for our time and target sedation, and it did have a shorter time to extubation between either midazolam or propofol. From Desire, which focused on septic patients and using dexmedetomidine earlier on, we saw that it decreases our inflammatory um, properties such as CRP. However, we did not see a difference between delirium ventilator free days and mortality at 28. So VICE-3 looked at dexmedetomidine compared to propofol or midazolam for 90-day mortality and did also, not see a dif also did not see a difference. 
I also did not see a difference for delirium, ventilator-free days, and mortality. Although there was a lot of crossover between the two groups, men's two really evaluated dexmedetomidine or propofol did not see a difference in these uh, outcomes as well. Although it's worth mentioning again that this was after the PADIS guideline implementation and more emphasis on that ABCDEF bundle. And there was a low doses of each agent in MENS2 for sedation. So now I'm curious to see if your answers are have changed at all. So which is your sedative of choice for light sedation in mechanically ventilated patients? Either propofol, dexmedetomidine, or you really don't have a preference? Okay, as we see more and more responses come, it's interesting to see that we have less people picking propofol, although this is not exactly the same question I asked earlier as maybe some of those propofol people have now moved to no preference. Although between dexmedetomidine and propofol, there is a decent amount of people who picked dexmedetomidine as well. So finally, we saw from Spicery and Desire that using dexmedetomidine early did not influence our clinical outcomes. We've seen several trials comparing these agents with little difference in outcomes. So perhaps it's time to make amends that one agent isn't better than the other. And what we, other things that we can do for our patients, such as implementing things like the ABCDE bundle, may have more of an impact. So I'll leave you with another quote from Dr. Petty in that same editorial in 1998, who concluded, None of these advances, however, can begin to replace the caring physician, nurse, and therapist at the bedside who brings a patient from the threshold of death back to the living. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, subscribe using iTunes or your favorite podcasting app. Thank you for listening to Mayo Clinic Pharmacy Grand Rounds. Join us weekly for more exciting clinical pharmacology topics.